Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my missing completely at random friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, Greg and I get to explore modern methods for missing data analysis while belaboring quotes from Top Gun with our guest Craig Enders, call sign The Fly. Craig looks back over the past 20 years of development in missing data analysis to discuss what has worked, what hasn't worked, and what new methods are available now that we didn't have back then. Along the way, we also discuss Sean, not Sean, going to the movies, grumpy old man mode, Wiener Boy, Gravedigger, Venice Beach Zoom Backgrounds, Lie Awake, Hungover GREs, Greg's Grandmother, Shiny Objects, Motorola Flip Phones, Ask Jeeves, Talking Narwhals, Mimeographs, Unscrewing Yourself, and Who Can Be Who's Wingman. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. So I'm not sure if I agree that the pandemic is over. But it sure is fun to start getting back to some kinds of things. Given that I just had COVID, I'm pretty sure it's not over yet. You whine so much. Oh, I'm sorry. You had not responded to one of my emails. I pinged you on it and you responded, sorry, I've been asleep for 36 hours. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. One of the things that I'm enjoying getting back to is our bands are moving back indoors. For almost two years, we played in picnic shelters and on basketball courts. Mm -hmm. But you know what is really fun? People who have listened to prior episodes of the podcast know about Sean. Oh, Sean. Sean is my nemesis because in a quintet, Sean plays first trumpet and I play second trumpet. And no matter how much I practice, no matter how much better I get, Sean is always better. And the frustrating thing with Sean is he is one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet on the face of the planet. But what is so fun, and it's already causing me anxiety, (laughs) Sean is getting married, and the quintet is going to play at his wedding. Oh, he let you be in the quintet? Really? I am in the quintet. Okay, wow. That's one of my favorite things post-pandemic. Nice. What are you enjoying getting back to? So one of the things I absolutely love to do with the family, even by myself, is I like going to movies. You know, it's very cool that we can stream things at home, but I actually love the physical environment of the movie theater. And for a couple of years, we just didn't go. So I'm finally able to go back into the theater, take the kids. I am really, really happy about that. Okay, so I love that as well. Mm -hmm. I know it's very rare that I do this. Can I go into grumpy old man mode? (laughs) Would you? (laughs) Okay, so movies you and I went to included Ghostbusters, Mm -hmm. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Mm -hmm. The Matrix, Batman, Star Wars. Yeah. Big blockbuster movies that have been out are... Ghostbusters, Bill and Ted's <laughs> Adventure, The Matrix, uh-huh. Batman, Star Wars. Uh-huh. Dude, when are they going to start writing new material? It's true. And I haven't seen most of those, but there's a part of me that's like, mm, that's like from a different chapter in my life. So I'm not sure. I drove my kid down to Atlanta over the summer and I laid up in town overnight at a hotel before driving back to Chapel Hill. Uh-huh. I went over to the movie Plex and right there, on their biggest screen was Top Gun Part 2. And I thought, ah, here we go, another sequel. Uh Uh-huh. It was one of the best movies I've seen in like 20 years. Completely agree. 
I don't want to give it away for people who haven't seen it yet, but I think they got just about every aspect of that right. I want to go see it again, honestly. Exactly. It was amazing. If you have any affinity for either action movies or kind of a romantic tie to the original Top Gun, I highly recommend this. Now, I just had an idea. <laughs> Uh-oh. I think... <laughs> no good can come from this, but okay, what? I think we should give each other call signs for this episode. <laughs> You say that as though you have a list of I do not. I actually do not because I didn't know we were even going to talk about Top Gun. All right. But I could come up with some suggestions. I'll tell you what, because, you know, in reality, you don't pick your own call sign. The other pilots give it to you. Oh, I did not know that. So I'm going to give you three and I'm going to let you pick Pick one. Which one is, is okay? Yeah. Great. For the rest of the episode. Who are your friends? Payback. Fanboy. What do they call you? Bob. No, your call sign. Bob. Literally. (laughs) Okay. All right. Oh, boy. Wiener boy. (laughs) It's hard to believe you didn't already have that written down. But okay, go ahead. Staphylococcus. (laughs) Does that actually fit on the helmet? That would just wrap around all the way to the back. I think the staff would hit the caucus. Use a small font. Okay, and the third one? And I'm drawing from last night on the back deck reading Winston. <laughs> These are the options? Yeah, those are the three. Wiener Boy, Staphylococcus, or Winston. Hmm. Dude, just pick it. This is not brain surgery here. Uh, all right, I'll be Wiener Boy. Okay, Wiener Boy. Outstanding. All right. So my choices are Night Fury. Wait, 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 wait. What? Um, I get to come up with choices for you. I thought you weren't paying attention to that. Oh, hell no. I've been writing them down. Shit. <laughs> are you ready? I scribbled down a bunch, so I can't really <laughs> narrow... <laughs> Narrow it down to three. Dude, clock is ticking. All right. Whack-a-mole. Uh-huh. <laughs> Reaper. Ooh, that's badass. I know. Gravedigger. Not bad. Okay, these are monster truck names. And it's Gravedigger the Legend! <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why do you know that? I, I, let's not talk about that. <laughs> Gravedigger, Gravedigger, Gravedigger. Just, what's your third one? That was three, actually. So I have a, four, a fourth one. Not Sean. <laughs> That's it. All right, so we got Wiener Boy and not Sean. All right. (laughs) Done and done. Now, you know what? Something else that was not phoned in this summer as a sequel Hmm. was one of my favorite people in the whole world, and I'm not saying that just because he's sitting on Zoom right now listening to us (laughs) and hasn't talked yet, is Craig Enders. And Craig Enders released the second edition of his book on missing data analysis. And I got to tell you, for a sequel released over the summer, this one parallels Top Gun. Honestly, I might even like it a little bit better than Top Gun <gasps> Maverick. I know. I don't. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's really close, but if you're going to make me rank order them. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Now, folks, Craig's like Sean in that you want to not like him because he's so good at everything that he does, but that he is too nice. He's too funny. He is too engaged in the field. He is cooler than you and me combined. <laughs> now, when we got on to Zoom about 15 minutes ago, Greg said, is that a Zoom background? Because it's this, like, kind of bamboo, live plants. Nope. Craig is sitting on his rooftop at Venice Beach, and I just can't compete with that. So if you're done talking now, Patrick, I'm going to unmute Craig here. There we go. Welcome, Craig. Hey, thanks. Is this where you cue the sultry sax music? (laughs) Oh, we can do that. Hi, this is Tate Hancock. Call sign Kenny T. This one's for you, Dr. Enders. (laughs) 
But if you prefer like some really good trumpet music, I know another guy who's really good. Yep. Thanks, Wiener Boy. All right. Not Sean. <laughs> One thing we love doing when people visit is getting an origin story because every single one of us has some drunken stumbling from one thing to another that lead us to where we are. Very briefly, Dr. Craig Enders is a professor in the quantitative psychology program at the University of California, Los Angeles, and we're going to let him introduce himself and give his own drunken stumbling story. So, Craig, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. Origin story. So I was a psych major, and you know, I sort of liked everything about psychology, but then didn't like it enough to gravitate toward one specific thing. And simultaneously, you know, I had been playing and was playing in a rock band back then. My only aspiration in life was to be a musician, right? The only thing I liked to do really was sit around and program synthesizers. So academics was sort of neither here nor there for me. It was fine. I was going to college. It was the kid who would like show up late to class and sit in the back and fall asleep. Now, where was that? This is at the University of Nebraska. And where'd you grow up? In Lincoln, same place. So, you know, college was whatever. It was fine. <laughs> I liked, you know. It wasn't an engaged student at all. And, you know, was sort of stumbling through doing good enough, but had no intentions of going to graduate school, certainly. So then my senior year, I'd been putting off this advanced stat class that all the psych majors had to take and sort of dreading it like everybody does. And just had this amazing professor that was life altering. His name is Cal Garbin. And, you know, the class was this hodgepodge of psychometrics and statistics, a lot of real data sets that were interesting and captivating. And it was the first class in college that I was like, wow, this is actually really freaking cool. Mm -hmm. You know, it was so neat that you could find like patterns in data and it was just a archaeology mission that had all this intrigue. And that was the senior year of college graduated, kept playing in the band. We were touring around the Midwest doing good enough that I didn't have to work or do anything other than just drink on the weekends and get paid. What was the name of your band? It was called Lie Awake. Lie Awake. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, doing that, I was the first person in our family to go to college, right? And this was all thanks to my mother. So simultaneously, I had heard in the background being like, you got to go to grad school. This band <laughs> thing isn't going to last forever. Just ceaseless harassment. <laughs> That's a good band name right there. <laughs> it is like a two-story outhouse and ceaseless harassment. <laughs> so first of all, I had done nothing to prepare myself to go to graduate school, right? I had a crappy 3.4 GPA or whatever and had done literally nothing that I needed to do. I had a gig the night before I took the GRE and was so hammered that night <laughs> that I, I couldn't stay for like the advanced GRE part. I made it through the first half and then just failed because I was too long over. <laughs> You guys can cut that out, right? Oh, hell no. That's in the promo. <laughs> so I called up Cal, the guy whose stat class I had as a, a senior. is was like, you know, I really liked your class. What's the next step? And he was like, well, actually, over in the ed psych department, they've got a great group of psychometric folks there. My strategy was, I'm going to just start taking classes. You know, I'm not going to apply to the program because I have nothing in my record that would make them be enamored with me. But simultaneously, I didn't have so much confidence that I was going to be a different kind of student than I was as an undergrad. 
So I started taking classes and eventually just got to the point where they're like, look, you can't take any more classes. You've got to apply to the program. <laughs> and I had done fine in all the classes. And at that point, I'd sort of turned the ship around. And so went and got my master's and was dipping the toe in the water and was like, all right, well, I'm going to go for the PhD. This is fun. Playing gigs on the weekend, making money. I can do graduate school during the week. So that's what I did. My final year, I didn't know really what I wanted to do after that. Most of the folks in the program went into industry, testing companies and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that that just didn't seem super interesting. So I was like, well, I'll try a faculty gig. It doesn't work out. can always um, hit the eject button and go back into industry. So I got my first job. It was at the University of Miami. I was there for about four years. And then my advisor at Nebraska, Debbie Vandalos, left. So I went back to Nebraska for a couple of years, then was fortunate enough to get a gig at Arizona State, where I was at for 11 years, working with a bunch of my heroes from graduate school, right? And um, that was just the thrill of a lifetime. And so then I ventured out here for a summer and rented an Airbnb in Venice Beach and was like, this is the coolest place I've ever been. (laughs) (laughs) UCLA happened to have a open rank position and was fortunate enough to get an offer here and decided to come hang out by the beach. So just another standard... Yeah. Nebraska boy, <laughs> rock star, grad student, yeah. formulaic way to become a quantitative methodologist. Yeah. I will say, I remember you when you were spiky, gelled up hair, grad student working with Debbie. Yeah. And we were presenting in the same session at the AERA conference in Seattle. And because it was in Seattle, my grandmother was in the audience. And she was 84 years old at the time. I had gotten up, given my talk. I had acknowledged that my grandmother was in the audience. And you had the next presentation. And you got up and you said, God, I hate following Greg. And his grandmother is in the audience. (laughs) The pressure is insane. And it was so cute that you'd acknowledge my grandmother. So I will never forget that. It was insane pressure. Now, one of my early recollections, we were out at a bar somewhere, but there were three or four or five of us out. And you had ordered like a whiskey neat And you looked in and there was a fly in your drink and you were so polite and you called the waitress over and you said, I am so sorry, but there's this fly in my drink. Could I trouble you for another one? And the woman was mortified and she was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she went off, but it was really busy and we're sitting there and the drinks on the table and we're sitting there and the drinks on the table and you pick it up and you start kind of angling it and taking little (laughs) sips kind of around the fly and then put it down and then you kind of angle it and flick it with your finger and take another sip. So that's my first memory of you is you were perfectly fine just to drink around the fly. So it is at this point in the conversation that I feel that we need to have Craig have a call sign. Oh. And so far I have Lie Awake, obviously in reference to his prior life. Yeah. Whiskey Neat, not bad. Oh, I like that. And I don't know what to do (laughs) with Fly. Just say The Fly. The Fly. There we go. So The Fly. So your options are Lie Awake, Whiskey Neat, and The Fly. I think I got to go with The Fly. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Wiener Boy, not Sean, and The Fly. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. At some point, we should probably talk about missing data. Patrick, do you want to get us started? Talk to me, Goose. No. No? <laughs> okay. I was at a conference, one of the ones at Penn State on the new methods for the analysis of change. And I think I was like a second year professor. I had been very fortunate to be invited to present, but John Graham and Joe Schaefer are in the audience, Linda Collins, <laughs> all of these people. And I get up and I have this sample of data I was using and I did listwise deletion. And I still remember as I stood up on the stage and I paused and I said, hello, my name is Patrick and I'm a listwise deleter. And everybody <laughs> on cue went, well, Welcome, Patrick. And <laughs> Phenomenal. So one thing I find interesting is with your book coming out in 2022, 2002 was the very impactful Schaefer and Graham view of the state of the art of missing data. And I love round numbers. I like even things. I like flat things. <laughs> and Shiny objects. Shiny objects. <laughs> and... A 20-year updating on what we see as state-of-the-art, I think, is a really nice balance with your second edition of your book coming out. What is the new state-of-the-art? Because if you think about what was state-of-the-art in 2002, I was thinking about this a little bit last night. The iPhone was introduced in 2007. Wow. I looked up what was the top-selling phone in 2002 – there was a Nokia and then a Motorola flip phone. Now, through this special TV offer, you can receive a Motorola flip phone with cellular one service for just pennies a day. <laughs> all right, I so had it. <laughs> in a way, now it's not undermining Schaefer and Graham at all. That was a profoundly important paper, but it's kind of the Motorola flip phone <laughs> of our view of missing data. So why don't you be the iPhone 14? <laughs> What is the new state of the art in missing data? Well, first, let me defend the flip phone. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can still buy those, and they're fantastic devices. That paper is the most highly cited paper in psych methods by a long shot. And I think it's still really like a must-read for anybody who wants to get into missing data stuff. So much of what they talk about in there is still sort of our daily driver methods that we use, right? or multiple imputation, those are still solid go-to methods. So yeah, I'll tell you what I'm enamored with and that I think is the new state of the art. It actually dates back to that same period, late 90s, early 2000s. There was a group of papers by this guy, Joseph Ibrahim, and a couple of his colleagues, and they sat dormant for 15, 16, 17 years. And he laid out a different way to approach missing data handling. So you know, most of the methods that were predominant at that time are centered around applying a multivariate distribution to missing data, right? So multivariate normal being the typical one. And Ibrahim's approach, let's call it factored regression specification. So his idea was to take this joint distribution, this multivariate distribution, and factorize it into the product of a bunch of univariate distributions. So in the simplest case, let's say you've got X and Y, and we could model that 
with a bivariate normal distribution. So his approach is to break that up into a product where it's Y conditional on X, just a regression model multiplied by just a marginal distribution for X. So if we had three variables, let's say y, x1, x2, we'd have y given x1 and x2, then we'd have x1 given x2, and then a distribution for x2. And so the really cool thing about that factorization approach is each of those regression models can be of a different ilk, essentially, right? We could have one of them be a linear regression, another be a logistic regression, one could be a count model, it could be anything. So his approach was to say there is a joint distribution, but we don't have to model it. We don't have to say what it is. We're going to just model the individual factors on the right side of the expression, each of which is just a univariate regression model. So that opens the door to all sorts sorts of things that we can't do well with, say, a multivariate normal model. So stuff like interaction effects with incomplete data. You know, those are very much at odds with a normal distribution or random slopes in a multi-level model or curvilinear effects or mixtures of categorical and continuous things. Those individual models could be really just about anything. They come together into a joint distribution that you sort of acknowledge exists, but you never have to model it formally or explicitly. May I ask two questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire away. One is, can you stop the birds from singing behind you because <laughs> you're like in a damn Disney cartoon? <laughs> okay, thank you. Thing two is, you described the factorization and you did it in a particular order. Yeah, yeah. Is there any role that the order of the factorization plays in this? The key, I guess, is that you want one of the terms to correspond to your focal analysis, right? So it's like Y given X1 and X2. Mm-hmm. That's my focal model. And then the rest of the models we could think of as essentially nuisance models, a way to deal with, you know, in a regression model, incomplete covariates that might have different metrics or maybe be nonlinearly related to one another. So yeah, there's different orderings, but makes sense to go from least amount of missing data first, like make those the last pieces in the factorization, because if a variable is complete, you could drop that model completely. It just functions as a constant, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And so it would be one less model that you have to estimate in this chain of stuff that you're dealing with. And maybe categorical variables first, ordered by sort of least to most amount of missing data, followed by continuous variables in the factorization. Hmm. Those are, I think, more practical recommendations, I guess. Just to place it in a broader context, would that still be of use when you had complete data? Because if you have this very complicated multivariate distribution that you can't express in some closed form, but can build it with a combination of these individual ones, it seems like that could be beneficial even when you have complete data. I think it depends on the model. For a regression model, I don't think that there's any benefit to that. But I think, you know, applying that logic to a structural equation model with complete data allows you to do some really interesting things because that framework, the way that latent variables are viewed are just as missing data. So the latent variables essentially get imputed along the way. And that factorization applied to like a latent variable model allows you to do all sorts of things like an interaction 
interaction between a latent variable and a nominal variable is the easiest thing in the world to do in that framework. You know, or some of the stuff that you work on, Patrick, with the nonlinear factor models with those complicated constraints, you can do that really easily in that framework without any of the constraints. Just let the grouping variable or whatever the background variable is interact with the latent variable. And so I think for latent variable models, it raises some really interesting avenues that we don't necessarily have at our disposal when we're attacking things from, from sort of a normal distribution perspective. Fimble is the default in everything at this point. Mm-hmm. And MI, you have to work harder for, but it's still pretty broadly available. How would you approach a factored regression approach? The last six or seven years, I've had grants from IES, and we've built, we being myself and former grad student, Brian Keller have built a software package, Blimp, that started off as sort of a modest multi-level imputation program in the first grant. And the second grant was really to expand it to allow for missing not at random models. And those models require two equations. You've got your focal regression, let's say some multi-level model, and then you've got a missingness model. And we sort of realized along the way that if we can estimate two equations in this framework, we can estimate 50 equations, right? Mm. So it sort of went from a barely basic start to just sort of blowing it up into a full multi-level latent variable modeling package that handles all sorts of different types of variables, categorical, continuous, count variables. So our goal was to put this powerful, flexible stuff into a package that anybody could open up and use without deep level knowledge about what was going on under the hood. And so go to my website, appliedmissingdata.com slash blimp. Got an app up there for Windows and Mac and Linux. Does all sorts of latent variable, multi-level modeling stuff all within this factored regression specification approach. So I got on Netscape and went to ask Jeeves to try to find your website, but I couldn't. Could you tell me again what it was? www.appliedmissingdata.com. Okay, maybe I should upgrade my 2002 technology. So you mentioned Blimp. I'd like to try to make a connection between the software Blimp and the second edition of your book that just came out this summer that was better than Top Gun. The second edition of Applied Missing Data Analysis. What I will say, just to start off, though, is a lot of second editions really are like a lot of sequels to movies where there are some updates to references, maybe some new graphics and all of that. And ta-da, it's a second edition. And part of that is fed by publishers who are always pushing you to get out a fresh edition. But I will say, you took this top to bottom and redid it, and I had the pleasure of already going through this book. Can you tell us the role that Blimp plays in the second edition, and then just more broadly about the second edition? Um, Yeah, you're right. It was a complete overhaul. I literally deleted everything and started over. Part of that, you know, as you guys know from teaching many, many workshops, you just find a better way to explain things over time, right? And so it felt like I could do a much better job explaining this stuff 10 years later. So that was part of the impetus. You know, and certainly Blimp plays a central role, though the book is software agnostic. I don't really mention any programs by name in the book. But certainly it plays a big role throughout all of the base stuff and all of the multiple imputation stuff. That's what I was using for all of the examples. But I think the thread that goes across all of the chapters is the factored regression piece. So those models are available for FIML as well, actually. Mm. 
in much sort of simpler rudimentary form, I would say at this point. M plus does a few things that fall into that factored regression heading. There's a package in R MDMB that does factored regressions for really just regression models. So there's some factored regression stuff on the thimble side, but that I think is sort of the thread that goes throughout the book is tying in all the new developments in that space. And so part of just starting from scratch was I want to get rid of some of these cringeworthy explanations that I gave in 2010, but then... <laughs> the ones that I use in my classes right now, is that those <laughs> ones? Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, the unicorn and the talking narwhal. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> very nice. Yeah. But you know, as I started to sit down, I pulled up all the Word documents from the old chapters, and it just became really apparent quickly that to shoehorn in all of this new stuff, it would feel like really disjointed and a bit nonlinear, maybe. And so it just seemed like a better idea to hit the delete button and start over. Wow. I expect a very small version of this just every year when I go to teach a class that I've taught before. In my head, I might have evolved and matured in the way that I want to explain things or the materials that are crafted, again, in my head that I could use. But it's so easy to go grab the folder, grab the PowerPoints, whatever it is. So I really think that you should be commended on that. That was a brave thing to do. And not only that, it's one thing to do away with the talking narwhal (laughs) which now that's all I'm going to be able to see for the rest of the afternoon. But Craig, let me ask you this. Was that really just how you wanted to tell the story? Or do we as a field need to think about a rewrite on how we think about missing data? Mm -hmm. So one thing that drives me insane when I review articles is someone will say, we use full information, maximum likelihood, and thus missing data are not a problem. Yeah. And I have a rubber stamp in my drawer that I pull out and have a brief paragraph about how it's under assumptions and that the authors need to describe the missing data and things like that. But is it hyperbolic to say that we've come a remarkably long way from mean imputation and last value forward and listwise deletion to FIML and multiple imputation? But do we need as a field to think about updating how we approach missing data? Yeah, great question. I still find great value in the flip phone, actually. You know, (laughs) the way that I was seeing this is we've got these, let's call them classic approaches based on a multivariate distribution. And those things are still insanely useful and easy to use. And we know a lot about them. And we've got these really sexy new approaches that let us model combinations of weird variable types that don't plug in to multivariate normal model. But, you know, those old methods still don't behave that much differently than the newer, sexier ones Hmm. in a lot of cases. And so I don't think it's a situation where we should abandon these classic methods. I think they're still extraordinarily useful and do surprisingly well in a lot of cases where you wouldn't think that they would do well. So I sort of see these things as complementary tools in our tool belt rather than, you know, let's wipe the slate clean and do away with these older approaches. So if you get that manuscript that says that it used FIML, you're not pulling out the rubber stamp necessarily to say that time has passed, but 
you just want to know that it's used under appropriate conditions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's things that Thimble does really well, and then there's things that Thimble does pretty terribly where you're going to expect to see some bias. So yeah, I agree with that. What are those situations where it does terribly? You know, I think anything with a nonlinearity in it, an interaction term or a curvilinear effect or a multi-level model, perhaps with incomplete covariates. It's really the covariates that are the problem, the predictors, the things on the right side of the equation, when those go incomplete, that's where you have to be really careful. If you've got an incomplete predictor, let's say it's exerting a random slope in a multi-level model, or let's say that it's part of an interaction effect when you go to impute that variable, be it them all sort of implicitly, you know, imputes the data or Bayes or whatever, that variable's distribution is heteroscedastic. And so you have to be able to model that feature of the data. And so a lot of software packages will gladly give you an answer when you use FIML. But we know from analytic work and also computer simulations that our results might not be so great on the back end. Mm. So that would put you in the danger zone. God, Greg, you're good. Oh, boy. <laughs> Did I take your breath away, Patrick? All right, I'm going to edit this episode and <laughs> all of those are going to be gone. Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. Okay, I was going to say one more, and you know what I'm going to do just to get in your head for the rest of the day? Uh, no, don't do it. Toot, toot, chugga, chugga, big red car. We'll travel near and we'll travel far. <laughs> I hate that song. But just to clarify, is my rubber stamp is not that you shouldn't use Fimmel and there are more modern methods. My rubber stamp is FIML doesn't mean missing data are not a problem. Right. These are routine kind of things that you see in the literature. I will read papers that don't even say what percent of data are missing yeah. or what patterns of missingness exist given known covariates. What I want to see is a paragraph that describes all of those things of the total sample, what percent were complete, what percent were missing at different time points, how do those relate to observed covariates, and then transition from there into, given the characteristics of our data, we believe full information maximum likelihood is an appropriate method, you know, whatever. That's more my thing is that there's a whole generation of students that seem to think we don't have to worry about missing data anymore mm -hmm. because so-and-so package can handle it. Yeah, absolutely. It's demoralizing how little the needle moves over time, right? How still terrible the reporting practices are. How would you improve it if you said, as one of the leading experts in this field in the world, here are X number of things I think an applied researcher should report as part of their manuscript? What would those be? Well, go read chapter 11 of my book. <laughs> no, I mean, all the things that you said, I agree. I have in that chapter sort of a laundry list. You know, many people have complained about the state of reporting practices, and, and many people have cataloged things that they would like to see reported. And I just really stole all of those and put them in one little package in, in chapter 11. And we've got online supplements now, right? You don't have to cram this into two sentences in the methods. We've got infinite online space. Certainly, as you said, talking about, say, how much missing data that they have, 
and exploring our assumptions about why the data are missing, right? It's easier than ever to apply missing, not at random models to data. Those aren't out of our reach anymore. They're simple to use and not appropriate for every situation, but certainly some like doing sensitivity analyses that examine the impact of our assumptions about missing data. You know, you guys both expressed your love for FIML in an earlier episode. I think one of the things that makes imputation or Bayes really appealing to me is that we can see the assumptions that we're applying when we do FIML. Mm-hmm. Right, We can plot the imputed data and get a visual beat on what we're assuming about the distributions of the variables. And it's kind of shocking sometimes to see what the missing data model is imposing on your results. So certainly doing sensitivity analyses around distributions that we apply to missing data. I could go on and on and on and on, right? And probably that's overkill, but certainly a page with a little more detail in an online supplement is not too much to ask. I have chapter 11 in front of me. And it's wonderful. It's a wrap up to the whole book and it helps people to know about reporting, just like we're talking about. Let me just read the headers for the recommendations. And Craig has been drilling down a little bit into those, but I highly recommend that folks take a look at this. Recommendation one, talking about your missing data rates. Recommendation two, talking about distributional assumptions. Recommendation three, the missing data process. Recommendation four, any auxiliary variables that you might have. Recommendation five, missing data handling methods. Recommendation six, the software tools and implementation details. Recommendation seven, sensitivity analysis. And recommendation eight, Bayesian estimation and multiple imputation. So throughout, Craig has a very nice flow chart of ways that you can think about things that you've done and ways to make good decisions and to report about those decisions. So chapter 11 is a beautiful wrap up to a fantastic book. You intrigued me a moment ago. You had an almost throwaway line about, well, now we can handle MNAR. And I perked up a little bit there because when I teach this, I talk about MCAR and MAR, and then I always have a bit of a shrug and say, if you're MNAR, I think the technical term I use is you're kind of (laughs) screwed. Maybe I need to update my own teaching. Now, granted, I'm still using curled and yellowed transparency slides that I had from like 1988. Some dittos. Here's my ditto and quit (laughs) sniffing them. Everybody put them down. You don't need to sniff the mimeographs. Tell us a little bit more about the MNAR. Yeah, sure. So just as a reminder, you guys did a really amazing job of describing missing data mechanisms and missing data processes in one of your earlier podcasts and just to sort of reiterate what those are because the terminology is awful, right? So missing completely at random is a situation where if you think about the causes of missing data, those are really unrelated to the variables in our model. And our default assumption most of the time is missing at random, or maybe it's better to call it conditionally missing at random. So it's the idea that once we condition on the observed variables in our model, that missingness is purely haphazard after that. So another way of saying it is that the unseen score values that we don't have access to, those don't play a role at all. Those don't tell us anything about why people might be missing. 
above and beyond what we already know from the observed data. And so that's the stock assumption that we make with thimmel or Bayes or multiple imputation. And then the third one missing, not at random. This is where the unseen score values themselves carry information about whether a person is going to have missing data or not. So it's my level of substance use that influences my decision to not report that to you. So how do we deal with that last one in practice, the missing not at random, right? What are some ways that we might approach that? Yeah, the two major frameworks that we could work from are selection modeling and pattern mixture models. Selection models, essentially, you've got your vocal model, whatever that happens to be. And let's say you've got, Patrick, in your context, this is probably a huge thing when you're talking about substance use and stuff like that. It's reasonable to assume, you know, that people might not report their usage patterns because of their usage patterns. And so, you know, we've got this dependent variable that maybe isn't conditionally missing at random. And so we would pair that focal model up with a second regression model where the missing data indicator is the dependent variable. And we're predicting that missing data indicator from the very least the dependent variable itself. So Y is predicting its missingness, but then there could be auxiliary variables in that missingness model. Some of the covariates from the focal model could be in that missingness model. And so simultaneously estimating our focal model and that missingness model, if we get the missingness model approximately correct, we'll adjust our focal model estimates in a way that removes non-response bias. You could think about those models as like a mediation process, almost like X influences Y and then Y influences missingness. And maybe some of the Xs also influence missingness directly. And then pattern mixture models flip the script and are more like a moderation process where that missing data indicator becomes a predictor variable. And essentially, we're saying that subgroups of people, people with and without data on our dependent variable, potentially have different parameter estimates. They could have a different intercept or a mean level on the dependent variable. Maybe the effect of an intervention works differently depending on whether you have data or not on the dependent variable. So those are the two major camps, and there's lots of other flavors of those models, sort of variations on that theme. But I think those models are fairly straightforward. You have to be very careful with them. I agree with your sentiment that if you have this, you're not entirely screwed, but you got to be really careful unscrewing yourself, maybe, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, so I think, you know, we know a lot about these models and know how they behave on real data sets. They don't feel quite as mystical, maybe, as they did mm. 10 years ago. So I love all the missing not at random stuff that you're talking about. And what it makes me think of is... What are some of the really cool areas where people could be doing research? We have a lot of people out there who are listening who might be toward the end of a graduate program. They're thinking about areas for dissertation topics. And this feels like... This is what I call a target-rich environment. 
<laughs> so can you tell us what some of the areas are that you think are good areas for people to be working in? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of meat left on the bone with these factored regression specifications. Mm -hmm. We were building the software package. We sort of have this realization, oh, we could do this. We can do this. We can add this variable in here, this count variable or this skewed variable. There's infinite combinations of models that you can pack into these factored regression specifications. And the theory sort of says they should all work and the software runs the models just fine and you get results that seem to make sense. Yet also, it's ripe for computer simulation studies to try to understand when these models work and when they break down, when they reach their optimal performance. So many of the studies, I think, focus on models with continuous outcomes and simple interaction models with two covariates interacting. And we've got all sorts of discrete variables we can throw into the mix now and different types of nonlinearities and Really, the sky is the limit. I think there's a whole lot of stuff to be done there. You know, and certainly also in the multi-level context as well, right? So these factored regression specifications we've been talking about, we can use them for two and three level models with all sorts of interesting stuff going on with the covariates can be different metrics and exert different types of effects on the dependent variable and there's been a lot of research on multi-level models with factored specifications, but again, it's pretty simple models with continuous outcomes. It's really just scratching the surface what these models are capable of. And so I think for people looking for dissertation topics, there's plenty of room to dig a little bit deeper and try to understand these models so that we can apply them more carefully. Something you said earlier that I really resonated to was sensitivity analysis. Yeah. Because you're exactly right, as a lot of work needs to be done in terms of when do they perform well, when do they not perform well. But I think some thoughtful work could also be done on how to use them and drawing up some general heuristics that involve some of these methods of sensitivity analysis. Because I think a lot of us who do substantive research are deeply dedicated to doing the analyses correctly. But at the end of the day, we want to know, is something going to change my discussion section? Yep. And so if you do a straight up FIML and get your results, can we incorporate some of these new methods to increase our confidence in that in terms of a sensitivity analysis? But if it does lead to a difference in conclusion, then that's an intellectual goose for us to try to better understand why the two methods differ. So I'm very excited about new projects that lay out some general heuristics of how you would go about using these methods in practice. Yeah, agree 100%. You know, I think another avenue for future research, certainly for folks who are in the SEM space, is how to assess fit in these models, I think, is mm. a real sort of tricky thing, right? When you've got categorical covariates interacting with a latent variable, and so all of our usual fit tools really kind of go by the wayside there. 
There's not a reproduced covariance matrix that we could pit against the sample data in the same way that we do with conventional SEM techniques. And there's been some work on this, like Ed Merkel has worked on this, mm-hmm. Ken Bolin has done some things, other folks have done stuff. But it's really interesting just sitting down and fitting SEM models with these factored specifications because stuff we sort of take for granted when we're modeling in multivariate normals framework, even how you identify the types of constraints you put on a model to identify it can have a surprisingly big impact on the convergence of the model and things like that. So there's a lot of interesting little stuff to figure out about these models and practical things for where the rubber hits the road, applying these things to real data. I've really loved listening to you describe what some of the new areas are that you've been working on, that you've put into your book, and then areas that are ripe for people to do work in. As always, your explanations are just spectacular. So one thing that I've known about you all the way back to your spiky gelled up hair days is that you are a wonderful explainer, a wonderful teacher. For anybody out there who hasn't had the pleasure of taking a workshop with Craig, and I actually have taken a workshop with Craig, I highly recommend that you do it. He's just a very, very gifted teacher. I completely agree. Craig was foolish enough to work with Dan Bauer and me and has a workshop with CenterStat. I have to admit, Craig, when you first taught, I was lurking and listening to your class because I was learning these things anew myself. I second Greg's characterization as I think you're one of the clearest teachers I've ever had. And so anyone who has access to that, I would highly, highly recommend that. Well, thanks for that, both of you guys. I mean, in truth, both of you have really informed how I teach. I was sitting in the back of that conference with Greg's grandma taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are both master presenters and master teachers. And I've soaked in your expertise over the years and borrowed and stolen things. I feel a hug coming on, which means I think we need to wrap this up. Yep. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, so definitely, Craig, you can be our wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to fill the holes for what's missing in their lives. Not at random. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks from redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donorschoose.org to help low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, your home for all manner of non-normality. Today's episode has been sponsored by quantitatively relevant Top Gun movie quotes. Number one, how you feel when you try to run a Monte Carlo simulation study of factor models with sparse discrete items using numerical integration on your laptop. I feel the need. Number two, how you fared on that grant submission as a brand new assistant professor. Crashed and burned on the first one, it wasn't pretty. Number three, how you're feeling when all those projects you thought it'd be fun to say yes to all need you to do stuff for them in the same week. Your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. And finally, number four, how we hope Quantitude has made you feel about MANOVA and post hoc power analysis.
Is this NPR? That is most definitely a negative, Ghost Rider. <laughs>